0: Welcome to the Beyond the Books podcast, where we're talking with the experts solving the world's biggest problems. My name is Jonah Lynon.
1: And my name is Aryan Singh. And we'd like to welcome you back to season three of the Beyond the Books podcast. For today's episode, we're excited to welcome Anissa Armit, who is a registered dietitian and PhD candidate at the University of Alberta. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your extremely busy schedule to join us, Anissa. We heard that you that you're actually vegan and half Italian as well. So, have you had the chance to cook any vegan versions of uh, Italian meals lately? Uh,
2: yeah, I I try to to do a vegan twist on some of the more traditional recipes that my mom and my nonna or my my grandmother taught me. Um, and I think I've I've managed to convince some family members that some of those dishes can be easily veganized. But um, yeah, it's I think, especially in Italian culture, it's more so about family and, and how you get together and share food that's much more important than the actual ingredients at times. So I try to always remember that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I come from a large Jewish family, and very similar in terms of the large meals we share. Yeah, yeah. Um, so would you mind telling us a little bit about your background, your research interests, and kind of generally what you're focusing on?
2: Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm a registered dietitian. So I completed my bachelor of science at the University of Alberta in nutrition and food sciences. And I completed my dietetic internship also at the U of A uh, back in 2018. And so shortly thereafter, I became a registered dietitian and really realized that I wanted my focus to be on nutrition research. And so I Um, applied for a Ph.D. program, was accepted as a direct entry Ph.D. student at the U of A. And so now I'm a third year Ph.D. candidate uh, in nutrition and metabolism, and I study how diet influences the gut microbiome, which I'm sure we'll talk about (laughs) later on, but how diet influences the microbiome and how this is linked to human health.
1: So is human health and nutrition something that you've always been really passionate about or did this passion develop over time?
2: Yeah, it it definitely developed over time. Uh, Like we talked about already, I'm half Italian, so I was naturally born into an environment where food was very important. And uh, luckily, my mom involved me in the kitchen from a very young age. So uh, by cooking and baking throughout most of my life, I really gained a passion for food and nutrition. But uh, it was really in high school when I started to learn more about human biology and physiology that I became more interested in potentially how diet would influence human health and and physiology. And so uh, before starting in university and post-secondary studies, I tried to find something that would merge the two worlds of of food and, and science. And that's where I learned what a registered dietitian was. So... I, uh, I was very lucky that I lived in a city where, at the U of A, there was already a, a strong nutrition program that existed. So I was able to, to follow those two passions and enter into the dietetic world.
0: That's really interesting. And I know, in kind of the nutrition research area, there are probably some uh, very commonly used research methods. And this is a question that we ask a lot of our guests who come from pretty varied backgrounds. Um, I'm curious to know if you had to take us through maybe a traditional day in the lab where you're doing some, some sort of research work on nutrition and metabolism, what would that look like? And what are maybe some common uh, activities you perform uh, when, when studying nutrition?
2: Mm -hmm. So in our department at the U of A, we have quite a few labs that work in basic research where they're using animal models or in vitro models to study how, you know, specific dietary components are affecting parts of metabolism uh, and trying to determine specific mechanisms that might be relevant for for humans or even animals uh, as well. And so we have quite a few labs that conduct those types of experimental research in in animals, but then there's also uh, quite a large part of our department that conducts human research from anywhere from observational studies that follow, you know, a large cohort of individuals and try to determine what are some of the most important associations between specific dietary components and, and health and disease. And then uh, we are equipped with one of the most comprehensive uh, nutrition labs here at the U of A uh, in our human nutrition research unit, where we have very sophisticated technologies used uh, to determine body composition. So the amount of muscle mass or fat mass that a person has, we can study uh, energy metabolism. So the amount of calories a person ingests and uh, how many they, they burn to really get a very, uh, like I said, comprehensive understanding of how different diets or different dietary components affect a wide range of, uh, Parts of of human physiology. And so in a typical day, you might see people running around in our research kitchen because we can can cook very standardized, precise diets for our human participants. So we know exactly what they're eating. Uh, We might be collecting blood samples, stool samples for research like mine that looks at the gut microbiome and processing that in a variety of different ways. So there's lots of different aspects that all come together, especially in the human sides of our research, uh, to really get a better understanding of how different dietary components are relevant for health.
0: And I'm curious now, so people that you actually recruit to participate in your studies, um, they, ass- I assume, would get kind of all their meals prepared for them by you guys. Um, is that something that you find it's hard to recruit people for or If you're Mm -hmm. saying, you know, come and we'll cook you guys free food, it's (laughs) generally not so difficult.
2: Yeah, so it's it's not the case for every study, but in studies, and I actually did one myself for part of my PhD project, we do give participants all of their meals and snacks for, you know, anywhere from a couple of days to a few weeks. Um, And so, you know, especially at the U of A, where you're trying to recruit students as part of your population, it is a bit easier to recruit them for these types of studies because you say, yeah, you can get free food for a few weeks and, and you're helping advance research. Um, but at the same time, it is difficult because, you know, we're studying real people who lead real lives and, you know, go out to restaurants or meet with friends and stuff. So sometimes it can be a bit difficult to say that we are exactly sure of what they're they're eating precisely. Um, But I would say it is one of the best ways to control a dietary intervention um, because we do have that level of precision in, in our lab.
1: A lot of times when I read through research papers, I I don't see too much uh, about like um, human nutrition or human metabolism. And a lot of the research today is mainly focused on like helping humans with common diseases such as cancer. And even a lot of the papers today are focused on COVID as well. Mm -hmm. So would you say that the research being done on human nutrition and metabolism is sufficient or does more need to be done?
2: Mm, That's a great question. I... I think there is an increased awareness of how important nutrition is uh, as far as how it affects our susceptibility to chronic diseases or COVID, for example. Um, I think it still might be the forgotten tool in in the toolbox at some some points, but um, really there are, especially with this movement towards you know, assessing the human body and human physiology is more of like a holistic approach, including diet. I think that is starting to become more well-recognized in research. Um, And compared to where we were, you know, even a few decades ago of our understanding of how important diet is, has really come a long way. But I think to some extent, though, the the old adage is true that the more you know, the more you don't know. <laughs> so the, the more we gain that understanding of, of how important nutrition is, I think it'll it'll only open up uh, worlds of, of different research to study of, of exact mechanisms for how dietary components affect health, what can be done, you know, at branches of qualitative research even as well to understand how people perceive different interventions or strategies related to nutrition. So Luckily for me as a nutrition researcher, I think I'll never be out of a job because just there's still so much we can learn.
0: I'm curious as well with a lot of the discussion around COVID uh, centering around comorbidity and other mm-hmm. factors that influence uh, the health risks that catching COVID would produce. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would assume diet is a big part of that. Um, is, is there any links that you've been able to find in your research or in possibly other work done in that? high uh, ex- uh i forget the phrase you used to describe what the the expert nutrition lab at u alberta uh, regarding the link between diet and and 19.
2: Mm-hmm. um so i i don't specifically do research on that so i can't say exactly what what has been done but overall we do know diet plays a huge role in our our immune system and overall the the proper functioning of our immune system with COVID, it's difficult because, you know, we see perfectly healthy people getting COVID. And so there still must be some other factors at play, of course. But I think, I think for sure that diet, this is proving how important diet is, like you said, for comorbidities as well that we know are related to uh, nutrition, diet, exercise, lifestyle, uh, factors like that.
0: Great. Thanks for that. And now to go back to what we had mentioned earlier, the kind of main focus of your research, the gut microbiome, Mm -hmm. Um, maybe again, kind of give anyone listening an overview of of what that is and its relevance for human health.
2: Sure, yeah, so uh, for anybody that's not aware, uh, you are carrying the most densely populated microbial ecosystem right inside of your large intestine or your gut. And collectively that ecosystem of bacteria, fungi, viruses, archaea, protozoa, all of those microbes are collectively known as the gut microbiome. And the gut microbiome has a genetic capacity as well to it that far exceeds that of the human body. And so in, in the past few decades, we've really come to realize how important this, it's been termed a forgotten organ, is for, for human physiology, because it influences everything really from the start of our lives as, as infants, when we first acquire our gut microbiome, to the point um, where, you know, as, as we progress through life. And these, these microbes really play important roles in things like regulating our metabolism, and ensuring that our immune system uh, develops properly and then functions functions well throughout our lifespan
1: would you say that there are certain genetic factors that would have an impact on our gut microbiome's health or are there ways that we can like actually control the health of our microbiome and would, and are there also any other factors that play an important role in the health of our microbiome
2: mm-hmm. So starting with genetics, it is one factor that that determines what your microbiome looks like, Um, but it's certainly not the only factor. And in fact, it's it's one that really plays somewhat of a small role because we know that even identical twins who, of course, have identical genetics, have very different microbiomes. And so um, what we've come to learn is that for the most part, our microbiome is... Um, is comes together through um, a process of random or stochastic factors. But besides genetics and that randomness, there are some other uh, factors that do play a role in what our microbiome looks like. Lucky for me, one of the major ones is diet and nutrition, um, but other factors such as antibiotic use or other medications, um, whether you're formula fed, breastfed as an infant. Uh, You know, if you have pets, if you have a large household, really, if you can think of anything that either introduces you to or exposes you to other microbes or, you know, a quote unquote dirty environment or any factors that limit your exposure to microbes or bacteria or or other, other certain microbes, those would all have an influence on shaping what your microbiome looks like.
0: So that's a pretty wide variety of topics. Um, what specifically do, do you focus on researching for your PhD?
2: Mm-hmm. So I my PhD overall is focused on how diets and, and diet interventions influence the microbiome and how these interventions modulate human health and whether or not that, that's linked to changes in the microbiome. So um, one of my PhD... Projects was uh, involved providing participants with a three-week non-industrialized type diet where a lot of the foods were minimally processed, plant-based, there were small portions of animal proteins. And we really wanted to see how moving humans that live in an in industrialized country like Canada, how moving them to this type of diet would change their microbiome and if that would lead to changes in metabolic markers like cholesterol levels, glucose levels, et cetera. Um, and then we wanted to, through that project, see if we could determine whether there were factors related to the microbiome like specific bacterial taxa or metabolites that they produce would cause or, or could predict how these participants would respond to this type of diet in terms of their metabolic health. And then one of my other main projects was similar in that we wanted to provide a dietary intervention to participants. But in this case, we provided um, participants, they were randomized to one of three dietary fiber supplements. And we know that dietary fiber is key for your microbiome because it's one of the nutrients that is not digested in the small intestine. And therefore, it's, it's exposed to gut microbes. And from what I said before, gut microbes have an enormous genetic capacity to them, part of which is able to digest dietary fibers for us. And in doing so, by fermenting those dietary fibers, they produce metabolites called short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids have been shown to have a number of physiological effects that are considered beneficial. And so we wanted to see if providing participants with these dietary fiber supplements would improve metabolic markers, inflammation, things like that. Um, And we really wanted to see if we could predict who would respond to those fiber supplements based on what their baseline gut microbiome was like. So if, if we know that there are certain microbes that can degrade or ferment these fibers, perhaps that's how we can predict or determine whether a participant would benefit from taking a fiber supplement. So overall, my PhD research is is trying to understand if the microbiome can be used as a tool to really determine how diet influences human health and taking it one step further to see if the microbiome can be used as a tool to predict how a person would respond to an um, certain dietary intervention so moving towards that personalized nutrition approach
1: yeah and that's definitely some really interesting research and it's really cool to see that uh you're doing research on topics that uh we don't really talk about that much in society and one other topic in the nutrition subfield that uh, i think all of us have heard quite about is uh personalized nutrition so could you tell us a little bit about how the gut microbiome might play a role in this area of nutrition research and dietetic practice?
2: Mm-hmm. So and something that maybe I didn't say explicitly before that's relevant for, for personalized nutrition is that each one of us has a very unique gut microbiome. It's like, it's like another set of, of fingerprints, if you will. And so because of that, the microbiome is becoming some a form of a a tool to use in personalized nutrition, which is a field that really tries to leverage human individuality in the hopes of being able to optimize diet for for human health. Because we know that not everybody responds to the same diet in the same way. We see very different responses in dietary interventions or, or if a person adopts a different diet. And so this this area of personalized nutrition really tries to, to leverage that human individuality. So that includes the gut microbiome, but it also includes things like genetics, our different food environments, our medical histories, all of that is really unique to each person. And so if we can if we can use that information and tailor nutrition strategies accordingly, personalized nutrition really has the potential to vastly improve individual health, and then by extension, societal health as well.
0: So that would be pretty amazing then, if we can get everybody to just get on board with personalized nutrition. Um, for anyone, again, who really has base level understanding of maybe biology or even lower than that, let's say, uh, if you had to kind of summarize personalized nutrition, as if you were explaining it to someone who has never heard of the concept, and you could maybe give them, let's say, two bullet points for why it's a good thing and maybe some areas where maybe not it's a bad thing, but we're still learning more about the personalized nutrition field. What would those bullet points be?
2: So I just wanted to stop because I don't know if it just happened on mine or,
0: yeah, or it on it on mine as well. As
2: well. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You just cut out at the very beginning. So I couldn't hear the first part of your question. Okay, Do sure. you just want to repeat it or?
0: Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah. It out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. So I was saying, pause. For anyone who hasn't heard of personalized nutrition and is new to the concept, has, let's say, a high school level understanding of biology, and you had to give them the bullet points edition of what are some of the pros of personalized nutrition and what are some areas where we're still struggling to learn about its impact, what would those bullet points be?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a a great question. For advantages of personalized nutrition, I would again say that because we know not everybody responds to the same dietary recommendations or nutrition strategies, personalized nutrition has the potential to um, avoid, avoid that generalized nature of these nutrition recommendations and instead really make it relevant for each person based on their their own unique gut microbiome, genetics, food environments, etc. And again if we can if we can get to that level where we're optimizing diet for for a person's health, then that has huge implications for its effects on society and our healthcare system, potentially reducing incidences of chronic diseases that are, you know, plaguing our, our society in epidemic proportions. And so not only for prevention, but as well for treatment, uh, this, this has the potential to, to really improve, improve health care at, like I said, both the individual and the societal level. But at the same time, I think personalized nutrition, if it's not done correctly, really has the potential to um, perpetuate disparities that we already see, as far as access to healthcare or or nutrition. Because you know, at this point, we're not ready for nutri- personalized nutrition to be you know prime time yet. But at the same time, it does cost quite a bit of money to get your microbiome sequenced or your genetics sequenced, and then to put all of that information together in some sort of algorithm or or whatever the case is to spit out that information that costs a lot of money. And so if personalized nutrition is only going to be accessible to those individuals in society who can afford it, then that might increase the divide between those that are well-off and those that are struggling and arguably are the most vulnerable and who need that kind of health care, And then at the same time, regardless of whether it's accessible or whether it's effective feasible the problem always is in nutrition is compliance as well and so if you don't have a person who is really motivated or they don't or if they don't enjoy the recommendations that you're giving them regardless if it's an effective strategy it's not going to work for them and it probably won't have an effect on their health because they're not complying with the recommendations. So I think the the two main problems that might come with personalized nutrition and the move towards it are issues of accessibility and compliance.
0: As they say, there's no accounting for taste. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We're very fortunate, though, to have people like you working on this topic, and hopefully, in the next ten to twenty years, maybe we'll see personalized nutrition really uh, rise in popularity.
2: Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I do hear sometimes through dietitian colleagues that are skeptical about it, and I don't think that it'll ever get to the point where personalized nutrition will ever completely replace what current dietetic practice tells us is right. But I think it will be something that hopefully can complement our current practice and really elevate it to the next level to improve healthcare.
0: Awesome. Well, Anissa, thank you very much for joining us today. For everybody thank listening, you. thank you for your time. My name is Jonah Linewand.
1: And my name is Aryan Singh. And we would like to thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Beyond the Books Pod, and we'll see you next week.